Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, we are recording on October the 20th, 2023. You're listening for the first time on Sunday, October 22nd, 2023. And there will be a rebroadcast on Monday, October the 23rd. Uh, my name is Jasmine, and this week for our local and national news stories, it's myself and my co-host, Reese. How are you doing, Reese? I am doing better now that it is Friday and the weekend is upon us. <laughs> Friday. Right? We need we yeah. need a little bit of a break uh, from just everything. Shit, it's been a crazy week in the news and just in life. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing all right. And I guess, you know, it's Sunday when people are listening. So, you know, I guess for most people, their weekends are coming to an end by the time they hear this. But there's I always hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. I hope you enjoyed yours too. But yeah, I'm I'm hanging in there like I always say, you know, could I could definitely be worse on a personal front. Um it's been kind of rainy and gross so far this weekend, but maybe I think next week it's going to turn around in the city. Okay. All right. So for our local news story, we'll be talking about the changing landscape for student protests at universities in New York City. And for our national news story, we'll be discussing um, Oklahoma's attorney general suing to stop uh, public funds from being used to establish a religious charter school. Uh, So up first with our local news story, we have Reese. Reese, take it away. All right, this story is from the Times, uh, New York Times, that is. The title is On Elite Campuses, A New Protest Demand Unwavering Support. Past student demonstrations sought to challenge the power structure. Now students also want validation. Um, And the author of the article is Jania Belafonte, and it's from October 20th, which is today. In what has become a familiar paradigm on college campuses around the country since the start of the war in Israel, hundreds of students at New York University faced one another late Tuesday afternoon in an exchange of chance accusations and disparagements. The setting, in this instance, was the north end of Washington Square Park, essentially the university's campus, where the groups, one standing for Israel, the other for Palestinians, were separated by a line of police officers and the inherently inflexible ideologies amplified by youthful certainty. Those who had come by way of Students for Justice in Palestine far outnumbered those who stood in support of Israel, though students on both sides expressed a fear of exposure. The doxing and death threats they worried would come with with a too public expression of solidarity. Some, uh, Some at the rally knew Muslim students who had been on the receiving end of some of these aggressions. The hostility particularly upset many of the students on the pro-Palestinian side. One of them, a senior who was Jewish, said he had been raised to be anti-occupation. He could not understand how Jewish students on the left, who find themselves now sympathetic to Israel, could feel abandoned by the social justice movement. 
Those students, he said, had the entire global power structure on their side. Just as the sun had set, one person wearing a kippah entered the park and approached the protest hesitantly before dis disappearing. He was scared, he told me as he walked off, of engaging with people who obviously hated him. Not long after, an Israeli flag was burned and stomped by someone who had concealed his face in a kafia and sunglasses, a look that has been adopted by other student protests. The risk of too openly taking the side had already been laid bare. Days earlier, a student at New York University's law school, Rhina Workman, lost a job offer from a firm, Winston & Strawn, after sending an email to NYU Student Bar Association placing blame for the initial attack from Hamas on the state-sanctioned violence from Israel that made resistance necessary. Everyone I spoke to, no matter what their position, asked that I not use their name. Concerns about reprisal are only the most visible difference in modern protests. The more meaningful shift can be seen in a tenor of campus activism, where historically a passionate, if monolithic view has formed around a grievance or set of grievances directed at a consensus enemy. In the late 1960s, it was a unified student body protesting Richard Nixon and the Pentagon. In the 80s, the apartheid government of South Africa in the decades ahead, the fossil fuel industry. In nearly every case, the university itself has stood as co-defendant, an adversary by way of its complicity in whatever injustice, though it's morally compromised research or financial investments. But a different dynamic seemed to be emerging against the backdrop of vastly different expectations, where the two sides at NYU converge. Beyond the matter of their shared anxiety, was the belief that the university was inadequately supporting them. The day of the protests, an opinion piece in the Washington Square News, the campus newspaper, criticized the university for its failure to acknowledge its Palestinian students and the pain they had they are shouldering. The writer argued that when a university ignores its students' pain, histories, and well-being, it fails to serve its communities, and that doing nothing would leave vulnerable students even more susceptible to potential harm. Uptown, a similar piece landed in the Columbia Spectator on the same day, titled, Columbia, You Are Failing Your Palestinian, Muslim, Arab, Black, Brown, and Jewish Student Activists. Even though letters sent to the community from NYU's president, Linda Mills, and later, in light of Rhina Workman's remarks from the dean of the law school, resolutely condemned Hamas' attack on Israel, some students felt that the response from the administration has been tepid. At the rally, I approached two students who stood with Israel and handed me a flyer with the picture of an eight-year-old Israeli girl who had been kidnapped by Hamas. One of them, a junior at Stern NYU's business school, identified himself as an Orthodox Jew whose grandparents had been imprisoned in Auschwitz and whose parents were in Israel at the beginning of the attacks and found themselves in a bomb shelter. He showed me a video of students tearing down flyers like the one he had handed me, which had been posted around campus. He was angry that letters to the administrators asking for some sort of action to be taken were not sufficiently acknowledged. He imagined an entirely different and urgent reaction, he said, if the child in the picture had been African-American. The campus protest of the late 1960s sought in part to dismantle 
the in loco parentis role that colleges and universities had held in American life. But the past two decades have been shaped by the reversal of that, as institutions have sought to reconstruct this role in response to what students and parents paying enormous sums for their education have seemed to want. According to data from the National Center for Education Statistics, during the 2021-22 fiscal year, private four-year colleges spent 40% of their budgets on student support services. Over the span of past of the past 20 years, the dollar amount has more than tripled. The letter from NYU's president, in fact, made reference to some of these services, pointing out that the university's division of student affairs had reached out to all students from the affected areas and offers of support and help, and that students had available to them 24-7 help through the Wellness Exchange, a counseling service. But in this especially challenging moment, that seemed not to be enough. Young people now arrive at elite colleges with the assumption that not only will they be seen, heard, and meticulously cared for, but also that their own politics will broadly align with those of the institutions they have chosen to attend. They have been given little reason to think otherwise. Students, administrators, and faculty, at least at places like NYU and Columbia, shared an antagonism to the Trump presidency and to the police abuses at the heart of the Black Lives Matter movement. The current campus protests reflect the limits of the more bonded relationship that students and universities have forged. Presidents beholden to wealthy donors have in many instances been urged by them to stand unequivocally for Israel. This week, John Huntsman Jr., the former governor of Utah and a major donor to the University of Pennsylvania, announced that he and his family would cut their funding because in his view, the school had not done that. Students in so many instances have sought something different. They want their ideas and passions validated. They have rarely experienced the alternative. Um, so that is the article. Um, I definitely think this is super relevant because I remember protesting when I was an undergrad and I think my experience was a little bit of both of what was described in this article. What do you think? Um, I definitely think that the framing of the article is interesting and it's something to think about because um, they the, the author makes reference to like back in the day, like when the Vietnam War was happening um, during the 60s and 70s, like there was a very different landscape as far as what college was, you know, like you had a lot of people that the tuition costs were not what they are now. Like there was a lot more, um, you know, like once college opened up to a lot more people and there were a lot of like public funding for schools and stuff like that. I think that's a very different landscape compared to, you know, and this article is speaking specifically of elite universities that cost huge sums of money to attend. And I think that we have gone from uh, that mindset of like college is a place where like you go like to learn and it's now become like this. It's not how much are you a student and how much are, are you a customer? And because you're a paying customer or in a lot of these types of schools at NYU at Columbia, your parents are paying customers like that kind of changes 
the dynamic between the student body and the university. Like it seems like it is more transactional as a as opposed to like principles, if you know what I'm saying. So you know, I I, I thought that that was um. I thought, you know, I, I keep saying interesting, but it was an interesting way to like frame like what's currently happening and that there is more like the demands are seemingly more about wanting there to be expressions of agreeing with a political stance as opposed to, I think, more like concrete actions or things that you want the school to do other than like maybe a statement. Um, what I didn't really see was wanting there to be an acknowledgement, kind of like what you're saying, that you have the right to protest or that your right to free speech is protected and we respect that and won't retaliate against you. Like, I didn't really see that happening um, from what the article is discussing. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, and, you know, just being a person who's worked in higher ed, you know, a lot. Um, there are moments historically that I have been a part of where taking a stance on something uh, specifically during 2020, I think that uh, I was a part of my institution taking a stance uh, in the Black Lives Matter protest. And of course, I was a lone wolf hat that had to stand out and say something and demand something to be said. But in the same context, the, the level of um, frustration I think that year for everyone um, was overwhelming. And so taking the stance, I feel like was a little bit more urged because we all were in just so much duress. Whereas in this instance here, um, and not to, not to discount the Black Lives Matter movement by any means, I feel like with these elite institutions, we all know where this money comes from, right? I mean, follow the money, you follow all of the decisions that are being made, unfortunately. So them encouraging any sort of protest um, in some respects is not necessarily as important for them to protect the interest of the so-called university. Um, but I do think it's relevant that students are looking for validation um, from these places and that they want to be connected to institutions that are taking a stance that are being more vocal and more direct about their messaging um, because that is a wave of the future, right? I mean, if we look back, you know, to some of the movements that they were talking about, you know, apartheid, Nixon, even Black Lives Matter, um, I think that there is a difference in the fact that students were doing whatever they need to do because that's what they need to do for their livelihood, for their okayness. Whereas in these times, being connected to institutions that stand for what you stand for or, you know, are on the right side of things as much as they can be, <laughs> which is, you know, one of those statements that we find out in the wash. Um, I think that's a wave of, of just uh, consciousness that has changed over time where before it was, this is what I got to do for me to be okay as a informed thought based human being. Whereas now it's like, I'm connected to this. This is a part of my life and I want this shit to represent who I am as a person, I think that's a really relevant point from this article and something to be talked about, not just from a college standpoint, but even employment. 
Yeah, I see. It's kind of like wanting to identify with the institution and wanting the institution to represent you. It's more like you want to be able to say, I see myself in and I'm reflected by what the school is doing. And that does seem like it's a new expectation that does come from this sort of like, I would say sort of like a customer mentality. Um that more young people have towards higher education. You know, not to sound like too much of an old lady, but that's just that's just my take on things. So yeah, interesting way to look at this. All right, so you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, for our first musical break, this is Janet Jackson with That's the Way Love Goes. We'll be right back. That's the way love goes. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our national news story, uh, this information comes from the Associated Press. The article was written by Sean Murphy. And the title is Oklahoma Attorney General Sues to Stop U.S.'s First Public Religious School. Oklahoma's Republican Attorney General Gentner Drummond on Friday sued to stop a state board from establishing and funding what would be the nation's first public religi- first religious public charter school after the board ignored Drummond's warning that it would violate both the state and U.S. constitutions. Drummond filed the lawsuit with the Oklahoma Supreme Court against the Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board after three of the board's members this week signed a contract for the St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual Charter School, 
which is sponsored by the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City. Make no mistake, if the Catholic Church were permitted to have a public virtual charter school, a reckoning will follow in which this state will be faced with the unprecedented quandary of processing requests to directly fund all petitioning sectarian groups, the lawsuit states. The school board voted three to two in June to approve the Catholic Archdiocese application to establish the online public charter school, which would be open to students across the state in kindergarten through grade 12. In its application, the Archdiocese said its vision is that the school, quote, participates in the evangelizing mission of the church and is the privileged environment in which Christian education is carried out, unquote. Oklahoma's constitution specifically prohibits the use of public money or property from being used directly or indirectly for the use or benefit of any church or system of religion. Nearly 60% of Oklahoma voters rejected a proposal in 2016 to remove that language from the constitution. So it says nearly 60, so less than 60. So that means almost 40% of the voters, I guess, did agree with rejecting that proposal, which, you know, this is me editorializing. That's a scary number of people. A group of Oklahoma parents, faith leaders, and a public education nonprofit already filed a lawsuit in district court in July, seeking to stop St. Isidore from operating as a charter school in Oklahoma. That case is pending. Oklahoma's Republican Governor Kevin Stitt, who earlier this year signed a bill that would give parents public funds to send their children to private schools, including religious schools, criticized Drummond's lawsuit as a quote-unquote political stunt. Um, and a separate article mentioned that uh, the governor was trying to give tax incentives to parents to send their kids to private schools. Uh, Attorney General Drummond seeks to lack, seems to lack any firm grasp on the constitutional principle of religious freedom and masks his disdain for the Catholics' pursuit by obsessing over non-existent schools that don't neatly align with his religious preferences, said, Stitt said in a statement. Drummond defeated Stitt's hand-picked attorney general in last year's GOP primary, and the two Republicans have clashed over Stitt's hostile position toward many Native American tribes in the state. The AG's lawsuit also suggests that the board's vote could put at risk more than $1 billion in federal education dollars that Oklahoma receives that require the state to comply with federal laws that prohibit a publicly funded religious school. Not only is this, is, is this an irreparable violation of our individual religious liberty, but is it, it is an unthinkable waste of our tax dollars, Drummond said in a statement. The National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, a nonprofit organization that supports the public charter school movement, released a state a statement Friday in support of Drummond's challenge. Um, and to give some background information, this is from the same author, Sean Murphy, also on the Associated Press website. Uh, this article is from July, so I'm just going to read a, a, set, a excerpt from it. Uh, the article's title was Oklahoma Parents, Faith Leaders, and Education Groups Sue to Stop U.S.'s First Public Religious School. 
the Reverend Lori Walk, senior minister at Mayflower Congregational Church in Oklahoma City, and one of the plaintiffs in the case, said she joined the lawsuit because she believed strongly in religious freedom. Creating a religious public charter school is not religious freedom, Walk said. Our churches already have the religious freedom to start our own schools if we choose to do so, and parents already have the freedom to send their children to those religious schools. But when we entangle religious schools to the government, we endanger religious freedom for all of us. The approval of a publicly funded religious school is the latest in a series of actions taken by conservative-led states that include efforts to teach the Bible in public schools and to ban books and lessons about race, sexual orientation, and gender identity, said Rachel Laser, president of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, which is among several groups representing the plaintiffs in the case. We are witnessing a full-on assault of church-state separation and public education, and religious public charter schools are the next frontier, Laser said. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm rooting for the AG here um, because this is not, in my view, I think it's pretty alarming news. Uh, I know there's a long-standing war just against public education in general in this country, coming from the right wing, and it's you know, very scary to me how much ground they seem to be gaining or that they are gaining. Yeah, I agree. Um, I definitely recently seen articles and videos about the wave of conservatism that has been attacking America over the past few uh, years that has just kind of been happening state by state, moment by moment, issue by issue, to the point where... Um, what we consider normal as an American democracy is being challenged by a conservative stance that is really a collective energy that we will all see will come about once there is a shift um, in 2024. So this is just another way um, that this is happening. And I can see this sort of thing creeping up in the middle of America where people, you know, don't necessarily pay attention to these small movements, but the reality that this is happening on a level that um, that anybody is privy to, um, you know, as a person who is a person of faith, I still definitely think that this is something that we should keep separate uh, for many reasons. So it is alarming, but it's also like, for me, not surprising that this is happening. And I think it's important for us to watch how all of this shift is happening, you know, behind behind what we are seeing in traditional news, because the reality is it only takes a little bit to get the ball rolling. And we've seen it happening in other places. When it comes down to public education being something that we're talking about shifting, there's so many other shifts that need to happen, not necessarily to be conservative and religious and whatever, because you don't know what they're going to teach when it when it becomes about that and whose God they're going to be teaching from. Um, but the reality is there's so many other things that need to happen with public education in America that is not uh, a faith-based move to make it legitimate, to help our children, to help our teachers, to help our society. And this is not one of the things. This is just another one of those things that 
is shifting the tide, the conversation and the power structures in this country. And unfortunately, (laughs) whatever control that um, anybody thought they had is literally being deemed while, while we're sleeping is being plotted and the fact that we're talking about this right now just shows how much of a shift that things have happened so far. Yeah. And I, I'm personally, um, I don't want to sound, uh, like I'm hostile to religion in any way, but I think that the whole idea that you can be fully educate or like you can, it's allowed for someone from beginning to end of their educational career, like as a child and a teenager, all of that can be done within a religious institution. Um, I do know that there are like religious schools that are good. They do a good job of giving the students a well-rounded education. They know, you know, the basics, but I think just in general, there's so much potential for indoctrination and abuse, you know, like, because I I get like the person in the article who was, you know, speaking on behalf of the archdiocese was based, they were saying that the purpose of the school is basically like evangelizing and pushing forward, like their idea of like a Christian education. Like maybe all the kids in the school are not Christian. Their parents might be, but for you to like in your home, you're already being brought up in whatever faith tradition, like your family believes in children are their own independent human beings like they might not believe anything that their parents believe in so if they leave their house and then they're going straight into an ex- a home like into a school environment that's basically an extension of their home environment where they're being i guess literally like indoctrinated with very specific religious beliefs i don't really know if that's the way to have like a well-rounded, like well-educated, like populace where people are just on the same page about like basic parts of reality. You know, like there are people who for religious reasons, like they don't believe in stuff that has long ago been settled by science or like they think that it's evil for one to learn about your own anatomy or where babies come from. You know, there are people who sincerely believe for religious reasons that that's wrong does that mean we want to be have it be allowed for children to be unable to learn those things if the parents don't want them to like i i don't know like i i absolutely don't think public money should be going towards this like absolutely not i really dislike that idea but i also think more broadly that there's some issues with it in general that we have people that are kind of in these alternate, whether also with just charter schools that aren't religious, they're kind of in this whole separate track of education that who knows, like what's really good, what are the standards, what are the credentials people have to be teaching? I just, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's, is that, you know, it does as a person of faith and, and I was raised in faith in a church in my home, things of that nature. But I also think about the importance of religion being taught from a objective standpoint, because I think that when we learn about history and we learn about society, 
we need to be able to make our own inferences of how things worked out. I think that's the best way for people to embrace faith in general. Um, It doesn't matter what faith you are. I think it's important for us to be cognizant and aware of faith-based practices because that is basically how this world is divided and has been conquered and not conquered and colonized and uncolonized. Like uh, it's all rooted in the history of how we are now. So there is an importance to me that people are taught what happened, how it happened, when it happened. And I think that that is my concern. Would I send my children to a uh, religious-based institution? I don't know, maybe, right? I don't know. I can't say that I wouldn't or I would. My point is, it would be very important to make sure that what is being taught as a way of life is coming from an objective standpoint that is not angled towards hatred, ambiguity, confusion, or self-hatred, or, you know, from that standpoint. And it's very hard. It's a fine line to walk. So I think keeping it separate, especially from a public standpoint, um, is important. And the choice of the family, the, you know, the culture to embrace whatever sort of faith base or not that they believe or followed or whatever. I think that is more of a internal family decision than something that should be public. We just really don't know what will be said by whom and for what purpose. And since we're not clear on that, then I feel like, you know, we should be mindful that that is a possibility in this situation. Yeah, I I definitely agree that we that people should be aware of like the history of religion and world religions and everything and not have such a narrow or like the only religion they know about is the religion that's dominant in the country or like right. a version of that religion like because it's a part of human history, it's a part right. of culture, all of that. I think the thing that's alarming in this article is it doesn't seem like that's at all what's going on. It seems very much like, and this being a Catholic school, like, I don't think it seems like if the subject comes up about what happened when missionaries came to the Americas, for example, like, is that going to be taught truthfully or is it going to be taught as we brought Jesus Christ to these natives Exactly. And to these slaves, we, we brought them to Jesus. And, you know, like, that's, like, very different from acknowledging, like, the role religion plays in history, the role it plays in current events, or being culturally sensitive and aware of there are many different religions, religions with it, like, sex within the same religion, and, like, being aware of that and being knowledgeable. Um, but basically having the schooling be about bringing the children up to be members of a particular faith. I don't, that I don't agree with at all, as far as it being like the totality of the education. Like I could see if it's like, I know a lot of people go to like supplemental school or like they have classes they go to on the weekends. Like, I don't think there's any issue with that, but especially taking public money so I, I hope that this other group, because, you know, the other the woman made a very good point, like she's a reverend, so very much someone who's in the church, a believer, but she's like, you know, creating a public religious school is not religious freedom, because it's like the government is sanctioning this particular school, and it's also like, yeah, if somebody were to 
like I'm not trying to be funny. Let it be like a madrasa or let it not be, you know, something that's recognized as a Christian school. Are these same people going to be like, yeah, probably not. Like they're kind of, they're going to pick and choose which religions they want to allow this to happen with. And then other ones is going to be a problem because it's not really about freedom. It's about pushing a specific worldview and a certain set of beliefs and pushing it on everyone. Like that's what I think this is going towards, but they're trying to muddy the waters talking about religious freedom and it's going to be doing the opposite. I agree. Definitely something to watch out for. All right. You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, this is I Am a Man of Constant Sorrow by the Soggy Bottom Boys. We'll be right back. can follow our social media accounts we have an instagram account and we also have a facebook account our facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free bk no spaces no punctuation our instagram account is at objection to the rule again no spaces no punctuation marks welcome back to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn and for our world story uh, we have janet here how's it going janet it's going pretty good it really feels like fall is kicking in now and the leaves are finally starting to change right Okay, so you have a world news story to talk to us about? Yes, I'm going to continue on the topic of Israel and Gaza that we um, initiated last week. Um, The story that I'm going to read is from the New York Times. It's titled, About 300 protesters pleading for a ceasefire were arrested on Capitol Hill, organizers say. And this article was written... Um, on October 18th by Efrat Livni. 
Hundreds of demonstrators descended on a congressional building in Washington on Wednesday afternoon to demand a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war, resulting in an estimated 300 arrests and restricting access to Capitol Hill. The rally was organized by two progressive Jewish groups, Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not Now, and about 400 of their members assembled inside the rotunda of the Cannon House office building, led by about 25 rabbis reading testimonials from Palestinians in Gaza and reciting prayers. Outside, hundreds more chanted, Cease fire now, and sang in Hebrew and English. Demonstrators are not permitted in congressional buildings. About 300 protesters were arrested, organizers estimated, though the Capitol Police would not comment on the number beyond saying that, beyond saying on the social media platform X that three were charged with assault on a police officer. Protesters were restrained with zip ties and led into police vans. Linda Holtzman, a rabbi from Philadelphia, said she was protesting because of her faith, values, and Jewish history, a theme other attendees echoed. Rabbi Holtzman, who said she was concerned about the violence intensifying against civilians in Gaza, said that her grandmother survived the Holocaust and that she was taught to fight for all human life. Quote, where there is no justice, I have to be a voice for justice, she said. Yasir Barakht, who moved to the United States from Gaza about 18 years ago, attended on behalf of his family back in Gaza, where more than 2 million people are running out of water, food, and electricity. Mr. Barak said he had limited contact with his family because of the, the conditions, and he blamed the United States for what he described as funding violence against Palestinians. Jim Best, 77, who identified as a gay, quote, red-blooded, patriotic taxpayer and grandfather, visited Gaza in 2016. A trip, he said, that accentuated the quality of life disparity among Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip and those of Israelis enjoying relative affluence nearby. He said he felt obliged to protest. Quote, my heart and mind and soul will never be the same, Mr. Best said. The gathering at the Capitol came two days after a rally near the White House on Monday that the Jewish, Jewish Voice for Peace executive director, Stephanie Fox, estimated drew at least 5,000 people. Activists at the rally on Wednesday called on demonstrators to attend another protest near the Israeli embassy in Washington later in the evening. On Friday, the organization plans to participate in a rally with several activist groups at the National Mall. Quote, people are coming from across the country, said Eva Borgwart, the national spokeswoman for If Not Now. She believes that protesting violence is a way to honor fallen Israelis and Palestinians. Quote, so many of us are grieving, she said, adding, quote, the horrific bombing cannot be the answer. And um, just to add to that recent story um, related to 
activity here in the United States um, from Al Jazeera. I have a, just a couple statistics of the situation at present. Um, for Israel, there are f- um, 1,405 people have been killed. 5,000 people have been injured. And there still are 210 captives that have been taken by Hamas and not yet returned to their families. For the Palestinians at present, um, in Gaza specifically, 4,385 have been killed and more than 13,500 have been wounded. And important to those figures is that um, a majority of the people killed Almost 2,000 were children, and almost 1,000 were women. In the West Bank, 84 are dead, and at least uh, 1,400 have been wounded. So the violence continues to escalate, and we can see why this group, um, so powerfully led by Jewish Americans, are demanding a ceasefire and unfortunately being uh, arrested for this brave activity. I I do find it really alarming that people's ability to protest and not be roughhoused and arrested is, I mean, we've been seeing it for many years in this country, but I think especially since 2020, it's just gotten worse. Like the way people are aggressively cracked down on for, You know, you say you don't want a cop training facility that's going to ruin the environment in Georgia. People are calling you a terrorist. You say you want a ceasefire. In the case of the protests you're talking about now, people are being locked up or like they're being arrested or put on buses. Like what is happening in New York and Brooklyn tonight that happened. People were aggressively arrested by the police um, for protesting. And that's not freedom at all zip ties and being put in vans i mean it just seems like these are people that obviously have their heart in the right place they're people since it was led by two jewish communities it can't be called anti-semitic or or any of the other rhetoric that's going on these are people that are mourning of course with as we all are for the loss of the victims of the Hamas attack, Um, but they're also, you know, actively going forward and voicing, I think there was an image included in this article where one of the signs says, not in my name, uh, or not in our name, because it's, don't, don't go murdering thousands of children in Palestine saying that it's to honor Israelis. Um, I think the woman summed it up so beautifully at the end by saying, you know, this bombing can't be the answer. So I think you're right. The, we've talked about different contexts on this show where police activity gets so hostile and it often seems to be hostile at certain events. Um, typically more left wing events. And so that's a frightening development as well. Um. Yeah, and like I I recently signed up for an account with, um, I, I don't know how to pronounce it properly, I need to look it up, 
Haaretz. It's H-A-A-R-E-T-Z, which is a major um, newspaper in Israel. Um, I've heard it referred to as like the newspaper of record for the country. And they, I, the other day, like I saw that um, the Israel police commissioner said those who identify with Gaza can be escorted there on buses. Uh, dozens of police officers forcibly dispersed a demonstration in Haifa on Wednesday as police commissioner Kobe Shabtai declared that police would not allow demonstrations of solidarity with the Gaza Strip. And they have an image, this is from October 19th, and they have an image of someone being grabbed up, you know, by the police. They have an arm around his neck. They have another hand around his, multiple people are grabbing the rest of his body. And, you know, we're seeing this trend in multiple countries of cracking down on people expressing themselves and it does seem like it's it's incredibly one-sided you know like i've i've seen it with like people who are trying to defend those seeking abortions uh in the united states it's like and you'll see the police are standing like they're protecting the people that are antagonizing the people getting abortions like you can tell from where their backs are who they feel yeah. they're there to protect Right. They are identifying as these people are the enemy that we're going to bash their heads in. And it's it's fairly consistent. It's like the people that are asking for, you know, in this case, we want a ceasefire. We want to prevent people from being harassed if they're seeking an abortion. We want to protect the environment. We don't want this pipeline here save. You know, we have to take climate change seriously. It's like you name it. Yeah. Those people get rounded up and like put on all sorts of lists and like lose job opportunities. Why is it that on the other end, people can be making statements like, let's wipe out this whole group of people and their whole faces on the television, nothing happens to them. You know, that's acceptable discourse, but this is not. Right. And I don't know how much more legitimate you can be than a protest for peace and and to have the cops antagonize you in that context, I mean, it's outrageous. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, it's nothing new under the sun. Like, look at, <laughs> look at you know, what, what happened with Vietnam War protesters. Look at, you know, what happened after 9-11 people that were against the Iraq War. It was a lot of the same, it's like same shit, different decade. Yeah. You know, like, how are you the enemy when you're saying, like, I don't want to, like, whatever it is that's compelling this country to be killing people by the thousands, millions, I yeah. want it to stop. Like, what's so funny about that? Like, what's so weird or wrong? Or how is that anti-patriotic to say that? Like, what? Right. And, and just to stress... Um, another statistic that struck me from the Al Jazeera website was that 6,000 bombs have been dropped on Gaza in six days. And it says that this is the number of bombs that the U.S. used in Afghanistan in a whole year. So a huge number in either case, but for them to have dropped that many and to have dropped it on places where there's mosques and a Greek Orthodox church was destroyed. Hospitals have been destroyed. 
schools have been destroyed. It's it's so cruel what's going on. Um. Yeah, it really is. And like I did see that there's some aid trucks that were able to get in from uh, from Egypt that were bringing medicine and some food, but no water and no fuel, which are very important at this stage. Exactly. Um, The fuel is helping to um, allow them to have the water filtration system. And I did see a convoy of trucks was headed in with water, but they said it was only enough water to feed 22,000 people for one day. So it kind of put into perspective how much movement of trucks need to be going in at this point. And, And just thinking about the basic water, I mean, it's horrific. Yeah, it really is. And like, I'll maybe on next week I might talk about like the way this has influenced um, waves of hate crimes or and threats of hate crimes in the U.S. Like for a, a national perspective, because it has bled over into. I feel like whenever anything happens on a global stage and it becomes mainstream news and everyone's talking about it, there's a lot of people who have latent, either latent anti-Semitism, latent Islamophobia, latent like anti-Arab or just general xenophobic against brown people attitudes. And they jump on this as an opportunity to like do their worst. Absolutely. And there's been a definite jump in like very horrific like crimes and murders and attacks on people because, you know, because they're Jewish or it's a synagogue or they're Muslim, they're Arab, they're not even Arab or Muslim, like they just are brown and have a turban on and like people are attacking them. And there's there's definitely a disproportionate amount of pressure and like backlash against black people who express pro-Palestinian um expressions like being doxxed and having their faces plastered everywhere and you know having their names smeared for expressing themselves it really does feel like going back to like mccarthy era tactics of like yeah you know rooting people out because they're not saying what the official government line is of what you're supposed to say even if it is something as simple and as you would think not controversial of not wanting this to continue, like just not wanting people to still be getting bombed or that to stop stopping people from having water and fuel. That's being framed in and of itself as like you are like an enemy of the state and you're dangerous because that's what you're saying. And I don't uh, I don't know. It's like if, if you're agreeing with that, I think you really need to like take a beat and think about what that means for you to be agreeing with that type of repression and what you could end up in in the future if that if this continues. Yeah, really wise words, Jasmine. And, you know, I think you're you're right on the hate crimes and the kind of any country that, you know, has immigrant populations or heritage here like it becomes kind of a second wave and on top of that you get people like you said who are just they feel this global issue gives them the switch is turned on so that they can do horrific things um hate crimes i know a friend at work he said his daughter's 
um, building, which is predominantly Jewish, just had all the mezuzahs desecrated. Um, Mm -hmm. That just happened this week. And, you know, like you said, it's happening both both ways and different groups and, you know. People that don't know anything about anything, but they see this as like, I have permission to act out on these beliefs and I'll be backed up in doing it. And they just like let it all hang out. Unfortunately, it's really scary. Like, I think I've said it before on the show, but I wish I need to find the original tweet, but someone described fascism is a disinhibiting force. Like it's something that is appealing to a lot of people because it gives them a reason to feel like their worst impulses, they can indulge them and it's okay. And it's, it's right for them to do it. And I think we're just, we're seeing that happening right now in this moment. All right. So you have been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, Keep listening for more community-based Brooklyn radio. And for our last song, this is Stevie Wonder with He's Mistra Know-It-All. Thanks for listening, and you'll hear us again next week. Bye. He's a man with a plan, got a counterfeit dollar in his hand. He's Mr. Know-It-All, playing hard, talking fast, making sure that he won't be Strong know it all that